Isaiah 54, Isaiah 54. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you, like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony, which is um, like a collection of stones, um, um, and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of a gate your gates with carbuncles, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones, all your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife, strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire on, uh, who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall confute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me declares the Lord. In this passage, God addresses two things that are part of human nature. The first is the notion that God could actually speak to you. And the second is the notion that maybe you're too bad to be used by God. The first notion, I came across this week, I've been reading through the novel Robinson Crusoe by Daniel Defoe. How many of you have read that? Okay, good. I'm about halfway through, so no spoilers if there are any surprises to the ending, but I'm about halfway through. 
And not to give you any spoilers, if you want to read it, but this is a fellow who was shipwrecked. And he's alone on an island in, around the equator in this South American region. And the ship that crashed uh, was close to the shore. And so he was able to go aboard and get a bunch of supplies and bring them aboard with him. This is all fiction, of course, but one of the things in there was a Bible. He didn't read the Bible for the first year that he was there. He started to read it. By and by, about his third year in, he opened up his Bible and it dawned on him, these words are for me. God is speaking to me through this book. And he shut the Bible. <laughs> and he shut out those thoughts for a moment, and he walked around the island, and he just meditated on that for a while because it sounded to him so absurd and so obscure and arrogant even. So out of place that you would say, God is talking to me in this book. But then he accepts it. And then he embraces it. And he begins to listen to the message of the book. He says that he'd been praying for deliverance from the island. And then he began to pray for deliverance from his sins. And it was this notion, this idea, this dawning on him that God was speaking to him personally with these words. There's always this notion when we come to the Bible, whether we come to the Bible before we're Christians or after we're Christians, that this book was written to people in another place, in another time, under different circumstances. Now, is that true? Was the Bible written to different people in different times, in different circumstances, in a different language than we use? Is that true? Well, of course it is. But because of that, we tend to say, okay, this is a message written to other people at another time, in another place, in another language. Therefore, the best that I can do is to glean lessons from it. In other words, God was good to these people, therefore he, I should probably look for ways that God has been good to me. God dealt with these people a certain way, therefore I should probably look for ways that God has dealt with me in such like manner. Or an even worse way of thinking of the Bible. Those aren't too bad, but this is a worse way. That God has certain principles in there that if I can glean out, then my life will get happier and better as I go. Those are the seeds of the health and wealth gospel. Now, the thing that we always hesitate in, and what God is trying to get these people over with this message is, yes, yes, I, I spoke these words to a different time, to people in a different time, in a different place, in a different language. But 
these words, these very words, are for you specifically in your time, in your place, in your location, and your language. And we know that because these were words that weren't written directly to the recipients. These are words that were written to the Israelites of Hezekiah's day about people a few hundred years from now. You see, God is saying, these are my words for you, and these will be my words for them. And go down to our last verse. It says, because... Uh, I'm sorry, I was in the wrong passage. Isaiah 54, our last verse of 54. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. This is the heritage. And that, my friends, makes this passage timeless. And if you've never had the experience of being struck by the fact that God in his word is talking to you personally in your moment, in your time, in your language, then I would suggest asking God to give you that sort of clarity. Because once you realize, as God is encouraging these people to do, that God is speaking to me personally through these words, everything changes. Everything changes. The second human tendency that God is talking to, talking about in Isaiah 54, is this notion that we're too far gone. Okay. This, of course, is a worry rooted in faith, believe it or not. Let me give an example. You know, a man, he's now in his um, late 50s, and when he was a teenager, he did many, many rotten things. In his 40s, he came to know the Lord as his Savior. And has walked with the Lord for a decade, a decade and a half now. His local church asked him if he would teach an adult Sunday school class. He's a good teacher. He enjoys learning the Bible. He's insecure about how much he knows. Um, he's taken extra Bible classes beyond what his church offers. He's done online learning and knows more than he thinks he knows. And his people in his church are starting to recognize that. And so they asked him if he would teach an adult Sunday school class on the topic of the Old Testament, on an Old Testament topic. And this fellow calls me. What am I supposed to say to this? <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? I can't say yes to this. Well, why not? Pastor, 
if they knew the things that I did when I was in my, I take it back, he didn't get, he got, he did a lot of bad things in his early 20s. If they knew the things I did in my early 20s, I'm just, I'm just so ashamed. And if they knew that, they wouldn't ask me to do this. All right. Okay. Let's review what God has done with your sins. What, what if that stuff got known? Like, I know that stuff. And if you were in Liberty, Utah Fellowship Bible Church, I would ask you to teach adult Sunday school. But he was convinced. And listen to Isaiah 54. If he accepts, if he accepts that God uses words to talk to him personally, how might Isaiah 54 change his situation? Okay, let's read this. Verse 3. I'm sorry, let's go to verse 4. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget, you will forget the shame of your youth. In the reproach of your widowhood, you will remember no more. Why? How, how do you know that you can say that? How do you know that you're not going to be disgraced or shamed? How do you know that these things aren't going to come back and bite you? Verse 5, your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. <laughs> God redeemed you. God called you. God's giving you this opportunity. If God is good with it, What's man to say? If God is good with it, who are you to say? God did this. God redeemed you. God loves you. And God wants you to get past this. God wants you to forget about those things. God doesn't want you to use them. To, God doesn't want you to factor those things into future decisions. The only thing God wants you to factor into the future is his goodness and kindness and love and mercy and calling and redemption and so forth. Do you see do you see this? Do you see that if you accept that God speaks to you personally through his word, that God has some very practical things to say to you in his word, namely, should you teach this adult Sunday school class or not, to my friend. So those are sort of the two bases that God is trying to cover with this passage. Now let's see how he does it. Okay, um, Benjamin, would you mind shutting that back door real quick? Let's see now how God does that. This is a passage of commands and comfort. Okay, It's a passage of commands and comforts. There are three-ish commands, three categories of commands, and there are seven different comforts. Okay, There are three types of commands, and there are seven different comforts. I say three types because some of the commands are a little redundant. Uh, they're re repetition, saying the same thing for emphasis, but it doesn't change the essence of the command. I hope that makes sense. So what's the first command? The first command is right here in verse 
1, it opens our passage of Isaiah 54. He says, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud. You who have not been in labor. You see, it's two commands. Break, sing, break forth into singing. It's the same command, essentially. But this is uh, singing not in the sense of um, putting on choir robes and um, having a director come up and lift his hands up and, and you start singing when the choir director tells you to start singing. It's not that, though that could be an application. This is a sort of um, off-the-cuff shout. Like, you have suddenly, shockingly, been given really good news. News that is so good, you don't believe it at first. You just can't quite accept it. It takes time for it to seep in. And then when you realize that it's real, it's true, it's happening, you shout. You shout. When I was a, I was 12, um, I, my, I played on a very good baseball team when I was 12. And um, we were in a state tournament. And uh, we were in the championship game. And the pitcher slotted to pitch in the championship game wasn't pitching very well. And the coach came in and took that pitcher out, and he asked me to come in. And I thought I was in for it because the team we were playing was very good. And fortunately, um, I had a good day, and they didn't score any more runs. At the same time, our team started to hit the ball. And lo and behold, we came back and won that game. On our way home, my dad, who wasn't, was usually my coach, but for that particular team, he wasn't my coach. But we'd won the state championship, and we were headed now to the regional championship. So we were going to play in a tournament with the best team, with the teams that won Kansas, Iowa, Nebraska, this sort of thing. My dad rolled down his window, because this is how they used to roll their windows down. <laughs> When we were about halfway home, my dad rolled down his window, and he shouted. My dad was so happy, and I was so proud that I could make my dad shout like that. That's the type of shout that we're supposed to have. Just thrilled, thrilled at the fact of something. It's not the prospect of something, but the done and dusted accomplishment of something already done. So what is it that God wants us to shout over? He wants us to shout that we have been cleansed. These are people, he says, that have been desolate. They're these They've been, their, their desolation, they, they've been hurt. They've been taken over by Rome, but, but now things are about to change. God is about to do something amazing in their presence. And, and God says, I want you to shout over this deliverance. I want you to shout over this cleansing. I want the fact that I am for you to fill you to the point that your song can't be contained. 
The second thing that God wants these people to do and wants us to do as servants of the Lord by our heritage is to enlarge eagerly. Okay, let's read this passage here and you'll see what it says in a second. Verse 2, enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitation be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. You hear there's uh, four different commands, four different ways of saying you're going to be going back to your land and I don't want you to plan for a meager future. I want you to build into your city planning room for growth. Don't build it small. Their habitations at this time were not, um, because they were going to be moving, their habitations weren't immediately for brick-and-mortar homes. They would be living in kind of heavy-duty tents for a while. And he says, you're going to prosper. You're going to collect things. Never before have you been able to collect things because you've been nomads or you've been wandering. But I don't want you to think that way anymore. I want you to think about permanency. I want you to think about growth and expansion. Let your tent cords out and don't skimp on it. Make it big. And what God is encouraging them is to plan for God's blessing. God says, plan for my blessing. Don't plan for hard times, plan for good times. If you had plenty of resources, what would you do in, a, in the expectation that those resources would continue? That's what God is telling his people. Hudson Taylor made this chapter of the Bible famous as he... Um, yes, it was Hudson Taylor, made this chapter of the Bible famous as he went on his, uh, as he was trying to raise finances for his missionary endeavors. He would say, God is doing a great work in China. God is doing amazing things. God is saving people in droves. We need to enlarge our tents. We need to expect great things from God. And that was the title of his sermon that he would use from Isaiah 54. Expect great things from God. And then he would say, attempt great things from God. Okay. Expect God to bless you when you step out in faith for him. And then the third one is fear not. And this is where we were just a moment ago. Fear not. There, there's a particular fear that Israel has to shed. There's a particular fear that we have to shed that shame over our youthful sins or disgrace over our confessed sins, that we'll experience some sort of reproach for actions long in the past, and that shame and guilt and fear holds us back so often. Now, even if, even if, and here's what I found, even if we aren't worried about some particular sin, what we worry about is our tendency to failure. And we can't imagine, we can't imagine a life without it. And that sin then throws a big boat anchor in our life. It's where anytime we move forward, we move forward cautiously. We move forward with no optimism. We move forward that the, the other Christians around us will speak optimistically and we just poo-poo it right away. 
And the primary reason is we live this defeated life in the memory of our own sins. And, and you, what God is trying to tell us is you can't get victory over this sin. You can't put this sin in your rearview rear mirror until you cut it, you consider yourself free from it. You have to reckon yourself free from that sin and its long arms that pick up and hold you back and expect that God is going to give you grace and mercy moving forward. Will it be a fight? Yes. Will it be a battle? Yes. But God wants the hope of deliverance from that sin, that conviction that you've been freed from it, to propel you forward so that it doesn't keep reaching up its long arms and grabbing you and pulling you back to the place you started. Does that make sense? Fear of failure holds us back from running forward. And when you, when you see how deeply that fear of failure has you, when you, when you get a sense, okay, I, I do fear that failure. You, you begin to realize how much it, it affects your decisions. I, I'm not going to take up the Bible reading this year because I always fail at it. Well, what kind of reasoning is that? I'm, I'm going to fail because I've always failed and I'm just not going to try this year. You've already failed. <laughs> Expect the grace of God to intervene in your life and help you. I'm counseling with a young unmarried man. I'm, I, I, the one I'm thinking of in particular was a fool if he didn't marry this woman. In fact, I said, listen, this is several years ago. You need to marry that girl. And if you don't, we're not friends anymore because I'm friends with her and I'm picking sides. Well, he had a problem with pornography. And he's going to fail her. He's going to fail her. Therefore, he shouldn't go forward with her. She knew about the problem. He knew about the problem. He hadn't fallen back into the problem. But this fear of failure was holding him back from the blessed provision of the Lord. And God is trying to cut that fear and expectation of failure off from his people. To cut that anchor free. Now, are you going to stumble moving forward? Well, sure. We confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But fear of the past, fear of shame and guilt back here should not keep us from moving forward. This is why we're told to lay aside every weight and to reach forward for the mark of the high calling, to press ahead. Forget the things that are in the past, we're told. Okay? Now, how is it that God can encourage us to sing? How is it that God can command us to plan for God's blessing? How is it that God can command us to stop being afraid, to stop letting our past dictate our future, to stop um, wallowing in shame and disgrace and reproach? How is it that God can say all those things? Well, he has seven comforts. Remember I told you this is a passage of comfort. 
He says, number one, uh, here are our comforts. God intends to bless Israel. Verse one, he says, I intend to bless you uh, for the children of the desolate will be no more. Uh, I'm sorry, for the children of the desolate will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Okay, I'm going to increase you. I'm going to bless you. And in this case, he was going to be blessing them numerically in the form of childbirth. Okay, you're you've been on the run, you've been nomads, you've been in other countries and reluctant to have big families, but I want you to have big families. This is a blessing. You will now have safety such that you can be blessed. Number two, God intends to expand the influence of his people. Let's look at verse three. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. God says, not only am I going to increase your numbers, I'm going to increase your influence. You're going to spread over the whole world. You're going to have influence in mighty cities. And this was already taking place. You had Daniel as the prime minister of both um, Babylon and Persia. You had uh, high-ranking Jewish officials the world over. In fact, in our worship service today, I'm going to show you a map of just how far the Jewish influence had spread prior to the coming of Christ. And God is saying, I, I want you to plan for my blessing. I'm, I'm going to bless you numerically, God tells his people, and I'm going to bless you influentially. Your influence is going to spread where you didn't think it could go. So stop being afraid. Stop letting your past hold you back. Verse 5. Verse 5, he gives another comfort. God, your maker, loves you. He's your husband. Let's look at verse 5. Your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is your name. A husband is a protector, a friend, a provider. A husband in this culture was the one who uh, provided the financial means for the wife to, to pursue her goals. Now, ladies back then loved interior decorating and, and um, stylish clothing just as much as ladies do now. And when money is tight, as all of you um, have had those times. Uh, let's say um, one of you ladies wants uh, to paint an accent wall in your house, and you've got the, the perfect color picked out, and the paint is, well, I don't know, $120 for a gallon. That's not a stretch. Paint is expensive sometimes. Okay? And you go, oh, no. And so you go to your husband. Honey, I really want to paint this wall this color. Can we afford it? And he says, well, let me, let me check. And he picks up some overtime hours and comes home and hands you the money and says, pain away. <laughs> well, that's what God is saying here. I'm, I want you to expand. I want you to expect blessing. I want you to expect good because I'm your provider. I'm your protector i'm your maker and i'm going to make sure you have what you need to do what i'm asking you to do okay. god is comforting us that way number four number four comfort god your maker has redeemed you the word redeem here um, we tend to think of redemption strictly in its spiritual sense um, i've been redeemed as in i've been saved from my sins in this culture, they thought of redemption more commercially 
with, with a spiritual application. Okay? And by redeem, you can redeem a lot of people out of a lot of different situations. Imagine a person who is um, um, enslaved. Uh, you could buy them back out of slavery. There was a temporary form of slavery for people who had gotten into too much debt, and you could buy those people out of slavery. Um, there were all sorts of, there was a variety of redemptions that you could get people out of. Hosea redeemed a woman who was a prostitute and married her. Okay. God is saying, I have bought you. I have redeemed you. I have paid the price to take you out of your bad situation and put you in a good situation. And so now that you're in a good situation, stop pretending that you're still in the bad. Because your maker, your husband, has lifted you out of that and put you in here. And what I want you to do is embrace this new reality that you're redeemed. I want you to embrace it that you're redeemed. I think we can imagine, it's not hard to imagine, um, imagine talking to a recently freed slave. Okay? Uh, they're an employee of yours, and they were a slave and they're just a month ago. And they come to ask you this question and that question and this question and that question. And imagine, finally you sit down with them and you say, listen, you're not a slave. You're not a slave. If you want to come in an hour late, just get your work done. It's okay. If you want to do this different on the job, that's cool. I trust you. And that person's mind is going to go... <laughs> They've never known that sort of freedom. And that's what God is trying to get us to wrap our minds around. He's redeemed us. And he's brought us over here and he wants to embrace that reality of his redemption. There are three more comforts. I'll go through them quickly because we're out of time. God's chastening is temporary, verses 6 and 7, but his love and compassion are eternal. Yes, God punished his people, but that's a very short little breath compared to his eternal love. Number six, God's covenant of peace is both active and permanent. Okay, God's covenant of peace is both active and permanent. This is verses eight and nine. When bad things happen or you perceive them to be bad, they're, it's not because you're not good with God. You are good with God and he's going to take that circumstance and turn it for your good. And his covenant of peace is always active and working on your behalf. And number seven, God promises a gilded future. Okay? God promises a gilded future. Um, yes, I want you to embrace all the blessings that you have now, but understand, this is just a foretaste of the glories that are to come. And so while I want you to embrace all the blessings that I have for you now, don't fall in love with them because there's coming a brighter and better day that's permanent and forever. And that's what I want you to meditate on and work toward and think about. That's what I want you to meditate on and make your reality. Okay? Okay. I got caught up on the beginning stuff and I lost my track of my time. My apologies. But I hope Isaiah 54 has been a blessing. Father, would you give us grace to um, trust 
your provision now. May we stop looking back in shame and may we listen to you as you speak to us, as you speak peace to us and comfort us, as you assure us that you've made an end of our sins. Help us to embrace that redemption and move forward with full confidence of your peace and blessing. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.